0: Our scripture is in the book of Acts. We're studying the book of Acts this fall. Actually, this this whole uh, year, next year, going into the spring as well. We're in chapter 1, verse 12. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room, Where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Judas bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language Akeldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another Who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of the message are the lessons that are learned from replacing Judas. Uh, Except maybe for some possible local connotations, I would like to amend the title and call it the 12th man. Seriously, they needed a 12th man. Judas, you remember, as of course the Bible says, it was his determination to do so, had betrayed the Lord. He had gone to the temple authorities. He had said, I know where Jesus is. I can lead you to him and then you can capture him there and bring him in for his punishment. They gave him 30 pieces of silver. He went out. It's always been interesting to me that they didn't need Judas. They knew where Jesus was. Judas didn't help them a bit. But what he did do was he destroyed his own soul. He betrayed the Lord. And he regretted it. Before it was even hardly a done deed, he took the 30 pieces of silver and went back to the authorities and threw it at their feet, spilling it all across the floor. Those men being men of the law realized that was not their money, that was Judas's money. He had earned it. They took that money and they bought a potter's field to have as a place of burial for the the disenfranchised, and the rejected. And Judas himself committed suicide. Horrible, horrible story, the story of Judas. Judas had been one of the 12. He'd been right in the middle of everything. You remember it was Judas who, who carried the money bag. He was the treasurer of the company. But now the events that we've talked about now for several weeks, Christ has been crucified, buried, raised from the dead. He's been appearing to His disciples for about six weeks. And as we saw last week, He's now ascended in the cloud of glory back to the Father. And now this band of disciples, the Bible says here, that they returned to Jerusalem. Jesus had told them to go to Jerusalem, and there they were remaining. And the Scripture says that they came there back to Jerusalem from Olivet, the mount where Jesus had ascended, which was just a short, short journey walking from the city of Jerusalem. And the scripture says, interestingly, as they entered the city of Jerusalem, they went to the upper room where they were staying. The upper room. I believe it was a particular room. The definite article is used in the language, the upper room, not just any room. This was probably the place where Jesus had had the last supper with his disciples and made preparation. This was at the supper where before Jesus ever got around to giving them the elements, especially the element of wine, which would represent his shed blood, Judas got up and left the room to go do his awful deed of betraying the Lord. Upper room. This was a special place. This was a place of intimacy. This was a place of fellowship. This was a place of confidence. This was the place where John had laid his head upon the chest of Christ. This is the place where Christ had, had, had sort of rebuked Peter again. <laughs> this is the place where they had enjoyed this, this closeness, this fellowship. This was the place where just a few weeks earlier they had gathered In seclusion and in fear and trembling the day that Jesus had been crucified and they'd been huddling there that weekend. And it was where Jesus appeared to them that Sunday night after the Emmaus Road experience. Thomas was not with them. A week later, they were probably in the same room when Thomas was with them. And he appeared to them again and convinced them with many infallible proofs that he was alive and it was him, and he, he was there in the flesh raised from the dead in power and in glory. And it was probably there that he spent a good bit of time teaching them the things they needed to know, that they would need to know for the upcoming mission that they were to have to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. This was a special place, this this upper room. The scripture even says there in verse 14, they were in one accord devoting themselves to prayer. together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus. Have you ever studied the life of the Virgin Mary through the New Testament from the days of her youth and the call the Lord placed upon her and the Magnificat, the prayer that she prayed? And We do this at Christmas. We get these nativity narratives and we, we sort of soak them up. But think about it. The Bible says she was often in the company of the disciples she along with several other women they were called the women of galilee and it it involves several of them some of them were the mothers of some of the younger disciples this was an intimate group this was a family group in fact there were cousins among them several of the disciples were jesus first cousins this was a group in in close harmony There were some in the group, though, that were not related, obviously. They were people who had come to know the Lord in His ministry, and they were disciples. The Bible says the number was about 120. And we get to that number, we begin to think, well, there's 12 disciples. And then there was, remember, Jesus sent out 70 preachers, sent them out two by two on one occasion. So there were at least 70 um, uh, men who were also in this group. Uh, Matthias, who we'll see in just a moment, was probably one of that group. There were others as well. The group numbered, the scripture rounds it off here to a nice that the company of persons was in all about 120. And number's always fascinated me. <clears throat> I'm going I'm to quit preaching for a moment. <laughs> Gospel truth and just give you a kind of a sanctified speculation. I, I love biblical numerology, kind of the symbol of numbers. And 12 is the number, 12. There were 12 sons of Israel, The 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob. Israel was considered to be founded upon that that enumeration of those 12 clans as they grew into tribes and, and confederated into a nation in the days of the early occupation of Canaan. And it was obvious throughout Jesus' ministry that He wanted 12 disciples. Because these men would constitute the new Israel. They would constitute the foundation stones and the pillars. They would be the men, they would be the file leaders and the rank leaders of the new, fulfilled, glorified Israel, the church. And Paul tells us that the church is established upon the foundation of the apostles. So this number 12 is important. It's interesting to me that when the Bible speaks of kind of the, the whole church here, it speaks of a number of 12 to a factor of 10. 10 times 12. 120. Good number. Probably, perhaps literal. I tend to take the Bible literally, and it, it may have been just count them out. You know, 118, 19, 20. I don't know. But it, whatever it was, it, we get the feeling that it's the 12 tribes expanded by a factor of 10. A manifold, a blessing. This was the minimal blessing of, of tenfold, fold 30-fold, 50-fold, 100-fold. And the Bible talks about they had now in this, in this nascent stage of the church, there were 120 that gathered in this intimacy of the upper room. It's also interesting to me that at the end of the New Testament, when the Bible wishes to symbolize the number of the great throng that have come, it takes that same 12 and squares it. 144. And then puts it time of three times the factor of multiplication. 1,000. 144,000. To signify the vastness of the number and the exponential expansion of the church and the number of people. Now, that's just speculation. But that sort of, that sort of thing just sort of shows to me the intricacy and the beauty sometime of, of biblical symbolism. But there were these people gathered, and who were they? Well, they named them. The, the 12 apostles are listed here. They're listed three times in the gospel narratives. It's the same group of men. There's a couple of names. You have to work a little bit on it occasionally because they, uh, they, almost everybody in the ancient world had multiple names. Sometimes it was just a matter of that name in another language because there were so many languages there in the eastern Mediterranean that were spoken concurrently. But this is, this is the group, Minus Judas, And it tells the story of what had happened to Judas. And Peter says, we can't go another step until we complete the foundation. Christ Himself the cornerstone, but the 12, not 11. We need 12. The Spirit was moving Peter to complete the group, to lay the foundation before the edifice was erected. And so that's what you have here. We have the story of this 12th man, this 12th person that was put into the apostolic band. There were uh, certain standards for this individual. First of all, he had to be somebody that was with him from the beginning. And the beginning was not just the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, but he went all the way back to the baptism of John. It was John who was the forerunner who who laid the groundwork. Jesus came in and and took the baton and continued the flow of prophetic fulfillment following John the Baptist there in the narratives of the early of the Gospels. We see that story. It had to be somebody that was there at that point who had seen it all from the beginning, who knew the, the very Genesis of the apostolic band, the very calling of Andrew and Peter and, and, and all of the others, John and, and, and all that had come together. It's got to be somebody. He wasn't numbered with them at that point. He hadn't been called by Christ to be an apostle at that point, but he was there. Had to be a man that, that had been there. And he had had to stay with them. All through the ministry of Christ, he was part of that group that Jesus taught, part of that group that Jesus sent out, part of that group that was there when Jesus fed the 5,000, was observing and, and perhaps with them on almost every occasion. Now you've been there at the wedding of Canaan. Who knows? But it had to be somebody that was, a, that was part of the concentric circle that went out just one more degree. It had to be somebody that was an eyewitness of the majesty of Christ in the resurrection. Someone that knew the resurrected Christ, that had seen Him alive. And it had to be someone who who had been with them all the way up to the time when Christ ascended, which, of course, had just happened. In their group, they identified two men who qualified. There were two men. It names them here. And um, they put forward two. Joseph called bar Barsabbas, bar or the son of the Sabbath. That's a good name, isn't it? I'm sure that was a nickname. Who was also called Justice, or the Righteous One. That's the Latin name, Justice, for the word sadik in Hebrew, which means righteous. That's a pretty good name, too. <laughs> I would love for this to be called righteous. And that was this man's name. And I don't, know how, I don't even know why they needed another one. I mean, when you get a man that's the son of the Sabbath, that is a righteous man, that's been with them all along, there's no reason to have another candidate, is there? But there was. There was another candidate. The candidate was a man by the name of Matthias. He too qualified. Some have speculated. I remember listening to a Bible teacher when I was a kid. It said, you know, the disciples made a mistake at this point because Paul was going to come along and he was going to be the 12th apostle. Paul didn't qualify. He was the first one to tell you that. He was persecuting the church. Paul didn't see the Lord alive in his ministry as far as we know. Paul did not, he had not been with the apostolic band from the days of the Jordan River. And Paul's apostolic ministry was special. It was unique. It was a call that went, that transcended that of the Jews and and everything about Israel too, taking it to its greater, greater fulfillment to the whole world. Paul was the one that said it's to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Paul had a special place of apostolic ministry. And there were other men from time to time who were deemed to be apostles. The word apostle means it's one that's sent and they were very significant in the the foundation and the spreading of the faith in those early years. But this was to fill up that missing place of the 12th man in the apostolic band. It had to have it. So they had these two men there. Now, the story gets very interesting at this point. Because um, they did a couple of things. Uh, First of all, the Bible says they prayed. And they prayed a prayer, not asking the Lord, but sort of telling the Lord. Lord, you know the hearts. A lot of our prayers are plaintiff asking the Lord things and that's that's proper that's as it should be we should call upon the Lord for anything but sometimes our prayers can be declarative vocative they can set forth Lord you know Lord you have promised Lord, you have said in your word. Lord, you have done before. Do it again. It's a prayer that is based on the knowledge of who God is and what he is able to do. And they knew that the calling of this 12th man was to be the work of the Lord himself. He had called the others. He was going to call this one. It was not their place to pick their favorite. It was not their place to decide who would be in this office but it comes from the call of God Himself. All of the men of God of the Old Testament and even the New felt that way. They were separated from their mother's womb to the task that God had given them. They were called with with an, uh, an unmistakable call from God and an irrevocable commission to do what they had done. And that's the way they wanted this to be. Lord, this is not coming from us. We're not making this choice. We're not laying hands on anyone. Our hands are off of everyone. You, O oh Lord, make the call. To me, that says a whole lot about not just the call to ministry, but the call to salvation. The call is that which God gives. He is the one that awakens and quickens. He's the one that gives the shout. He was said, Christ Himself. It said, "Lazarus, come forth." And that's what the Lord does to each and every one of us in our own lives. He calls us forth. Calls us from death to life. Tells us to come out of the tomb and to stand up. And Then about all that's left to do is like in the case of Lazarus. Somebody's got to loose us and let us go. (laughs) And serve the Lord with gladness all the days of our life. Oh, we don't need this this onus and this this cloud upon us. Oh, it's our duty. Oh, we have to. No, no, no. The Lord calls us and raises us up and he enthuses us for for the work. Because here's what the Lord's been doing. The Lord in his providence had been working on the one he was going to pick all along. He had already been working in his life. He had been preparing. He had called him to be with the man in the first place. They prayed. But then they cast lots. That sounds like rolling dice or something, Ron. Well, no. The casting of the lot was something that was very, very important in the ancient uh, Israel. God rules sovereignly. And the Bible says, and it's spelled out in the book of Proverbs. Let me just see if I can flip over here and find it real quick. I think I marked it. Yeah. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. They believe so strongly in the providence of God and the sovereignty of God that they believe God orders and ordains all things whatsoever come to pass. And so the casting of the lot was no problem. The Lord would take the lot and cause it to fall. The way and the place and upon the person that he wanted to receive the office or whatever it was. In fact, the high priest, who by the way is a direct representation of Jesus Christ, the high priest in Israel carried in his breastplate a couple of stones, the Urim and the Thummim, two stones that it would use to cast lots, to make decisions. Now, the decision was not on who was qualified. They were both qualified. It could have gone either way and the right man would have been chosen because both men met the criterion. But the Lord, as the Scripture said, every decision is from the Lord. Every decision is from the Lord. Do we really believe that? Or do we kick against that every time we turn around? Do we really, really see the hand of God in all the things in our lives? Now, this doesn't do away with secondary measures, and all kinds of secondary and tertiary causes and circumstances and all sorts. The Lord orders that too. It's all in His hands. It's all in His control. And the disciples knew that first principle, that God is in control. Christ is the Lord. And so they let this decision fall to him and it was carried out by the casting of the lots. And it says the lot fell on Matthias. Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's, let's give him the right hand of fellowship. Let's gather around. Let's, let, let's, let's welcome this new ordained man in fact the old translation says let another take his bishopric his office this was an ordained office that they had set aside a man now to fill in this special way we make much of that in our church and in our denomination if our elders and our pastors and our deacons and those that serve in these offices where the responsibility the authority for leadership is 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 bestowed by the lord and we we defer and we pray for and we We give them the the reins and we expect them to follow the Lord's leading through prayer. And then the willingness to go with whatever the will of God is, whichever way the lot falls. Are you willing to let the lot fall where it falls in your life? Oh, I know my sinful heart is not. I've got something. I want it to go this way or that way. And, but the Lord is the one who makes the decision. Lord, was was their prayer? You know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen. They knew it was a decision that had made in eternity past. It was already done. They just wanted to know what it was. They weren't asking the Lord to decide; He had already decided and you know the hearts of all. That's just it. The Lord knows in His infinite and in His omniscience. He knows the heart. He knows the ways of all. And He causes the lot to fall in our lives. That which are going to work out for the good to those that love Him. That's a a tough, tough principle to get into your life. And most of us sort of fight against that or ignore it or or somehow walk around that. When we reach that point in our lives, we are now in submission and surrender to the Lord. We've learned to walk in the path that He lays for us. You know what my first thought is? When they selected Matthias, I thought, what about poor old Barsabbas? He didn't get picked. There's nothing in the world worse than losing an election. (laughs) Ask Hillary. It's just sad. I mean to tell you. I've got an illustration which I'm going to pray the Lord will not let me use. But uh, you're you're up for election. You're up for choosing. It's time to choose. And they choose the other guy. The other person. Gets the blessing, the spotlight, the eternal glory, the pages of Holy Writ, the foundation of the church. It's Matthias. <laughs> it is not Varsavus. It's not old Justice. He missed out. The Lord didn't choose him. What would you do? I would do what I do. I'd quit and go to another church, is what I would do. <laughs> I've done that before. <laughs> I mean, really, I say, if these people don't want me, if this is not, if they don't think I'm up to this, if this is not, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll go somewhere else where they appreciate me, in any number of ways. But you, you know what I'm driving at. You know how we feel. What happens when you're not chosen? When you're not selected? When you don't get that spot? When it comes time to nominate officers and elect officers and your name is not on the ballot. Well, that's the work of grace that the Lord does in the heart. There's a sense in which poor old Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, eminently <laughs> qualified man. He just didn't get, the, he didn't get the, the job. You ever studied the life of this guy in the New Testament church? <laughs> You don't hear any more about him for a while. Oh, Justice, old oh, Barsabas. But then all of a sudden the church has a problem, a real problem, the first serious problem it had since the days of the Diaconate controversy. And that was whether or not we are going to admit Gentiles into the church without circumcision and and all of the controversy of the Jews and the Gentiles and and all of that came up and the church was was beginning to expand and all of the problems and the whole church was involved in the controversy and the men from all over came back to Jerusalem. And you read the story in Acts chapter 15 and we'll get to it here in, in a few months. You'll read that story and you'll find out that that when it was all said and done, they had a council. It was the first council of the church. It was the the Jerusalem council. And they met and they made a decision. And when it came time to render that decision, they looked around and said, Who can take this message? Who has the wisdom, the maturity, the respect, the stamina, the, the diplomacy? Who among us is the tool that God has fashioned to do this job? You know, God has jobs to do, and He needs a tool to do that job. And sometimes He works for years taking that tool and putting it in the fire and bringing it out and, and filing it down and, and shaping it, putting it back in the fire and remolding it and all of that. And all the world you do is going through with the fire. And all you do is going through the trouble and everything. But God is making a tool. He's forging an instrument that one day He'll need to do one job in the kingdom, and that's you. What's the Lord doing with me? Well, he's getting you ready to use you. You see, sometimes God uses people mightily all throughout their life. Sometimes God just picks one day and gives them the whole blessing. That's what he did for Samson. Samson's job was to kill Philistines. He messed around with that job all of his life and didn't do too much with it. Finally, on one day, he took down the five lords of the Philistines in one day. He accomplished all the mission that God had given him. His life's work was done one afternoon in a pavilion there in Philistia. Well, see, that's what God was doing with Matthias. Can you imagine the diplomacy and the tenderness and the compassion and the humility that had been forged into the heart and soul of Barsabbas? Staying with the apostles all these years, staying in that band, even though he was not numbered with the 12. When they lined up on the platform, you know, at the revival meeting, he wasn't up there with the 12. He was sitting out in the pew. But there came a time when they needed a man who could take the word, which was very controversial and very delicate and very sensitive to the churches, especially back to Antioch, where the controversy had started and into the churches around the country. And guess who they chose? Barsabas. And then a little later on in the story, he paired up with Silas, Silvanius, and a little later on in the story, you hear about barsabas again and he's doing the same thing he's on a diplomatic mission and the bible says numbers him as one of the apostles and the prophets that's a pretty good designation and he said that the people had confidence in him and people respected him and they honored him that was his ministry and paul mentions him in colossians as one of his fellow workmen. So somewhere along the line, down the road, Barsabas was hooked up with the Apostle Paul in his missionary journeys, as of course Silas had done, and Timothy, and John Mark, and Barnabas, and others, over the years. See, God can use you down the road. When you may not get the opportunity you want right this minute, He will use you down the road. And that's what happened Oh, by the way, there's, I don't think there's good support for this, but there's a strong teaching that, that uh, Barsabbas is, was, is the justice that's mentioned in the uh, New Testament who had the household that was next door to the synagogue in Corinth where they started the church. When the synagogue kicked the Christians, the believers out of the synagogue along with Paul, they went next door to a house right next door and, and started a Christian church. And they, it's the same name and everything, and some say it might have been the same guy before it was all over. I don't know, I, I don't know about that or not, but that's it. What did Matthias do, by the way? He was, he was the one that had been appointed. He was numbered with the 12. Eventually, we don't hear any more about him anywhere in the pages of the New Testament, as far as I know. But we hear about him in church history and church tradition. He took the gospel to Ethiopia and one of the strongest Christian ethnic groups and nations in the history of Christianity for 2,000 years has been the church in Ethiopia. And that was where Matthias ended up with his ministry. What can we learn from the way they, they did this, this uh, choosing of this 12th man? Well, we learn about fellowship, intimacy, We learn about sacredness. There was something about that upper room. There's something about place. Every once in a while in your life, you've got to have come to a place where you hear the voice of God, not audibly, but just in your heart saying, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. You're in my presence. I'm talking to you. You hear me through the scriptures. You hear me through your conscience. You hear me through your, your heart. You open your mind and your heart to me. We learn about submission to the sovereign will of God in the choices that are made. We learn about receiving the lot that falls to us from the hand of a good and loving God. Even walking through dark providences, we know about that. We learn something about how to handle disappointment, how to handle rejection maybe, how to move forward in the life of of living the Christian life and in our ministry. And so many more lessons that the Spirit teaches us through this, what appears to be kind of a a, a minor episode in the nascent church, but it's not. It's not. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed, and it's profitable. And I think this is one that's profitable for instruction in righteousness and for reproof and correction and teaching us, the ways of God. I like that title, 12th Man.